This sermon was preached by Juan Quap, head pastor and church planner of Maranatha Grace in Inglewood, New Jersey. Maranatha Grace was planted in 2010 and is seeking to reach New Jersey and uptown Manhattan with the gospel. You can find more sermons from this series and many others at www.maranathagrace.org. Please feel free to distribute this sermon to friends and family, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way. Good morning. Today's scripture reading comes from Psalm 126. It can be found on page 440 of the Bibliotech Bibles and the Seats. Psalm 126, a song of ascents. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. Then our mouths were filled with laughter and our tongues with shouts of joy. And they said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us. We are glad. Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like streams in the Negev. Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. He who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bring the sheep with them. This is the word of the Lord. So I'm going to walk us through Psalm 126 with three points. These are the three easy points. A joy-filled past, a joy-filled present, sorry, and a joy-filled prayer or future. These, um, <clears throat> these chapters um, that 126 is found in, um, Psalm 120 through 134, are known as the Psalms of Ascent. Imagine taking a family trip, an annual family trip, and it's a road trip because you've got a large family, so you can't fly, <coughs> UNs, okay? And it's, <laughs> it's quite a journey. Sorry, the, son, me and Tom have five kids, and it's beautiful, but they can't fly anywhere, right? <laughs> it's, it's quite a journey, but it's become a tradition. And on some occasions, um, you absolutely, positively dread the time. <laughs> Why? Because sometimes it's a drag being in a car for 12, 13, 14, 15, 20 hours to get to your destination, especially because there's no internet, right? I know nowadays cars are, have, are LTE, uh, you know, capable or whatever, but your family only has one gigabyte of data that you share, and so you're not going to be using LTE. Sometimes, you know, especially as you've grown older, you now think it's kind of cheesy to be hanging out with your family and going on these annual trips. You're too cool to, to be spending large swaths of time with your family. Sometimes you're fearful because if you had a father like, like Juan Kwok who falls asleep, who used to fall asleep at the wheel quite often, I've only crashed twice, okay? Once in Connecticut and once in the Lincoln Tunnel. All right, so um, I, I, I hit the wall and I kept going, all right? So I didn't stop any traffic or anything like that. So you dread the time because you're fearing for your life. Sometimes... It, it requires that you, even the young ones in here, it requires that you set aside some things that you're working on for the moment. So, man, your, your time and your schedule is, is, is cramped by this trip. Sometimes you have to put your agenda on the back burner because, hey, this is a family thing and we need to, to do this as a family. Whatever the reason, 
what usually, not always, but what usually helps during these times is remembering why the annual family trip was instituted to begin with, right? When you remember that the trip is actually rife with meaning and significance and memory-making moments, and you, you recall just the, the joys and, and the, the, the fun and the happiness that you experienced in the past on these journeys, these trips, in the life of your family or whatever group it is, then not only does this trip become bearable, it becomes totally worth the time and the effort. Right? Well, again, biblical scholars refer to this portion of the book of Psalms as the Psalms of Ascent. And these 15 chapters from 20 through 134 were sung by God's people on their pilgrimage, on their, perhaps even more than annual, on their pilgrimage to Jerusalem to make it to the the mount, the temple, actually, on the Mount of Zion for, for their feasts, for their festivals, Passover, Pentecost, Tabernacles. And the purpose of the trip was to worship. And it wasn't just worship when they got to the temple at Zion. It was worship all the way through. They were worshiping. They were remembering and recalling that they were God's covenant people. Because of God's steadfast and loving kindness and his faithfulness to them, they had reason, great reason to worship. So these songs primed them. These songs readied them for temple worship. This psalm that we're going to uh, delve into today is the seventh of the 15 pilgrimage songs of ascent. And uh, early in my sermon series, I think in the first week, I alluded to um, just some background, you know, kind of like, hey, this is the the book of Psalms. This is, you know, um, the the poetry writings of the Bible. And I I talked about the categorization of, of the psalms. Well, this specific psalm of ascent Seems to, seems to be one that mixes a lot of different categories. It's like a psalm of praise, a psalm of worship, a psalm of thanksgiving, a psalm of promise, and even a psalm of lament. So if you consider that it's only six verses long, right, it's a pretty, pretty dynamic psalm. And uh, that's what we get to, to, to learn about today. And what the author does is what I alluded to earlier. When you dread or when you're feeling like, oh man, I can't bear another moment in this car. The author begins by hearkening back to a joy-filled past. And you know, the psalm doesn't specify which particular act of mercy, which particular um, um, time of deliverance or restoration that God provided at this point. But in this case, and often is the case, it almost doesn't matter because on almost every page of the Bible you find some story or occasion or, or instance of God delivering mercifully. This is what Tremper Longman says. He's a, a scholar who's written some great books on, on the Psalms. He says, we will give consideration to a possible historical setting for the composition of the Psalm as the return from Babylon. While such a moment is fitting The poem is not concretely connected to that time and thus can be used in any setting where God in his grace and mercy restores the fortunes of his people. So it can, okay, there's some numbers up there, all right? Remember to hit the ProTech and then go and address what you need to do. Just a reminder. But 
This can apply to, to any time of deliverance, as Dr. Longman makes clear. But some scholars believe that verse 1 refers to a return from captivity. So let's say it was the account of the Babylonian exile. You know, one scholar described what Israel experienced in this way. I don't think it's going to be up there. It was the worst that can come to any of us. Rape in the streets, cannibalism in the kitchens, neighbors reduced to bestiality, a 600-mile forced march across a desert, the taunting mockeries of captors. It was a harsh time. It was a harsh time for God's people. Babylon came in, destroyed them, defeated them, raped and pillaged, and then 70 years of exile. And then finally, a return from suffering, a return from their exile and captivity. Incredibly, relief came, and what did it result in? We, we read, we heard read, thank you, Carson. Laughter, right? Their mouths were filled with laughter, and, and their tongues cried out with shouts of what? Joy. Laughter and joy was what filled their past. Derek Kidner, now, we, we, we read verses 1 and 2a, I'm not going to reread it right now, but we, we probably weren't like, okay, you know, I, actually, from, from how you responded from what I saw back there, no one flinched, right? But this is how Derek Kidner, another commentator, scholar, he, he describes what they're experiencing or what that experience must have been like as delirious happiness, it was a dream come true. I don't know if you guys have ever had that dream where you wake up and you, you, you want to go back to sleep because you want that dream to be true. It was a dream that was too good to be true that came true. Delirious happiness. This is what the people experienced. This occasion was tremendous and it was so tremendous and it was so remarkable that what happened? The neighboring peoples, the Gentiles, who were looking at what happened, what did they say? Verse 2b says, then they said among the nations, they is the neighboring peoples, they said, the Lord has done great things for them. Can you imagine that? The neighboring peoples, the enemies, some, some of which were enemies, saw what happened and they're like, whoa, we don't even believe in that God. But he did some great and amazing things for them. They were literally... The talk of the nations. This was their past, and it was a past that was filled with joy and gladness. And it was a past that formed their present joy. It was a past that reformed, even, reformed their present joy and led them to rejoice, as we sang. Right? And that leads us to our second point. Joy-filled past is what they had, but they also experienced the joy-filled present. The psalmist who is reminiscing about the past and bringing it to light to the people, the covenant people, also gets us into the here and, in the here and now, right? Verse 3, it says, The Lord has done great things for us. We are glad. This is what 
was fueling their present happiness and joy. And I know a moment ago, actually, I, I, didn't, I didn't say it, but I'll say it now. Not, not many of us have experienced that kind of delirious happiness that the Israelites experienced. I, I look and I'm so wonderfully happy and blessed that our church is a, a church that, by God's grace, is diverse seasonally. We've got some folks who are, you know, close to becoming octogenarians, 80s. Are you going to be in your 80s? We have some in our 70s. We used to have a guy, a pastor, who was in his 80s. Right? So we, we know that there are people amongst us who have experienced liberation from you know, um, uh, an enemy nation or, or a dictator. And so there are a few of us here who know perhaps this joy, this happiness that the Israelites experienced when they were free from their captivity. But for, you know what? I think there's a larger subset of people here, those who are in Christ who have experienced a deliverance, who have experienced uh, a liberation and a redemption greater, far greater than any experience throughout the history of humanity. All you have to do is look back to your salvation. You have to look back to your conversion. Perhaps you have to look back to before your conversion before you were in Christ. You have to think of who you were then and where you were. You were in the ash heaps, as we were reminded last week. What were you doing? How were you living? But then Christ, but then Christ, but God intervened and pulled you out of the depths of your sin, your guilt, and your condemnation, and think of who you became, who you are now. That's all you have to do for those of you who haven't experienced that kind of political, geopolitical liberation. That's all you need to do to to have a greater idea of this joy that's being spoken of here, the great things that the Lord has has done that you can be glad about. You can look back to when you were saved. You know, there's there's something really fresh about saving faith, or at least um, there's a freshness about when we were were saved, right? Obviously, you're it's it's new, it's fresh, right? It's it's there's more passion, right? Have you guys ever come upon a newborn Christian, a newborn person in the faith lately? What, what, they're, they're all like giggly right? <laughs> and bubbly, right? They're, 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 they're a little bit more passionate than those of us. I, I know I'm generalizing, okay? But just bear with me for the moment. They're a little more passionate and excited they, they have this tendency to, to, you know, in a childlike, not a childish, but a childlike manner, wear their faith on their sleeves. They're, they're excited about telling people who Jesus is, right? Remember that time, for those of you who are older and wiser? 
They're excited about telling who Jesus is. They're excited about, you know, learning about the Bible. They actually want to learn about the Bible, right? They actually want to be at prayer meeting on Wednesdays when the church gathers. They want to be there. I don't have to guilt trip them. Not that I do, okay? I don't have, we don't have to manipulate people. That's a joke, okay? Um, for those of you who are new. Sorry. I need to reel myself back in for a moment. They want to be with Jesus. They want to be with God's people. They want to be engaged in God's mission. And I, I, think, of, I think of our sister Audrey. I'm sorry, I should have asked you if I could point you out. But Audrey, I mean, she's such an encouragement. She's, she wants to learn about God. She wants to learn about how it applies to parenting. She wants to learn about how it applies to life and politics. So she's hungry. She's ravenous, as a matter of fact. And she can't not but help be at everything that she can grab her hands on or, or be at. Because there's a freshness to faith. The freshness that, that, that led her to, to do what? On the second day of VBS, go upstairs. I'm sorry, Audrey. <laughs> but it was such an encouragement to go upstairs and to grab her neighbor and say, there's a VBS, a vacation Bible school at my church. You kids want to come? Boom, they're here. And it wasn't because Miss Diane said you get six tokens for inviting any friends, okay? You guys remember that? That's what she said. It wasn't for that reason. It was because she wanted people to hear about the love and the grace of God. When you're fresh in the faith, you're, you're, you're more compassionate, I, I think, towards others. Because your hearts are soft. Your hearts are tender. Your hearts are newly saved and newly pierced by the grace of God. And so you do all that you have to do to share about this grace that God has, right? Remember those days? You know, just as a side note, the reason why we plant churches is because, uh, believe it or not, it shouldn't be the case. It should be... Well, what's ha- what happens with church plants and established churches is uh, um, Barna, Redeemer, they've done all these studies. Um, church plants are more excited and passionate and more on mission, so to speak, than established churches. It's just true. There are more people who get baptized. There are more conversions. There are more, um, you know, just more growth through conversion rather than transfer from other churches. It's just true. That's one of the reasons why we planted this church. There's a freshness of newfound faith. And when I look back to when I was saved, I, I think of how I was, a, I was a walking contradiction. I know I've shared this with you guys. I haven't done so in, in the recent past. But um, what I mean by that is I was proud. I was arrogant. I was smug, and yet I was so extremely insecure. <laughs> I was so shy. I wouldn't let, in, let on that I was a shy person, so I said a lot of stupid things, and I did a lot of stupid things. But one thing I never did when I was, before I came to know Christ, was I would never cry, right? Because I thought that crying would expose all my weaknesses, and all my fears. So crying was out of the question. 
But I remember when God saved me at that foot washing, at that summer retreat, between my junior and senior year of high school, as this person that I had no idea I offended was washing my feet, God took all the knowledge of him that was in my head and just brought it down to my heart. And I was a babbling mess. Because I knew at that moment who I was and what I was and how God had saved me and made me his child. There's only one person who cries more than me at this pulpit, and he's not here anymore. (laughs) You guys know what I'm talking about, right, Pastor Rob? (laughs) But in my early days as a Christian, you know the best times I had? Getting a hymnal. I used to have uh, this Korean, bilingual Korean-English hymnal. I used to grab that hymnal, and I used to just go into my closet, literally, and just sing hymns and cry out to God. Literally cry out to God. I would sing and pray. That was my joy-filled present when I was saved. What happens? Things get old hat. Sins harden our hearts. They make us calloused and cold. Sins that are forgiven, but nevertheless, that keep flowing out of our hearts and our lives because of our flesh. This side of heaven will continue sinning, but we're saved from that sin. Life gets complicated. Life gets busy. And so what do we do? Instead of experiencing a joy-filled present, we move on. We, We move on too quickly, right? We move on too quickly from the joys that we should have and experience, the joys of knowing Jesus daily, in daily dependence, knowing Jesus and relying upon him for daily decisions and life. We move on from that to just wanting to do what? Wanting to experience a jolt of joy, right? What do I mean by that? We, we, we want that experience, We don't want daily dependence. We don't want daily guidance. We don't want daily wisdom. We want that jolt of this. Isn't there a soda named jolt that's really, you know, like extra caffeinated? We want that kind of experience in our spirituality. So we want to go to Kansas City for six months or for a year and pray. Why do we have to go to Kansas City to pray? We could just pray in our prayer closets, pray together here at our church. It's not a bad thing, I guess. But we want that spiritual high. We want an experience. We want the warm and fuzzy feelings when we want them. But we forget what a true joy-filled present is about. And it's about a lifelong discipleship. It's about a following hard after God daily, taking up our cross, denying ourselves, and following hard after the God who fills us with his Holy Spirit and gives us the power to follow hard after him. Well, what else do we do? We, we replace the joy that we have in knowing Christ, the joy that we experienced at conversion that we should be experiencing every single day of our lives, and we, we seek to have joy in, in whatever entertainment or pursuit or 
titillation that the world provides. And these things aren't bad. I'm not saying these things are in and of themselves sinful. But when we replace God and the joy we have that comes from God and knowing him and living for him and living by him with whatever else it might be, the idols that Daniel prayed about, we lose out. Listen to what Eugene Peterson says, talking about the entertainment industry in America. He says, the enormous entertainment industry in America is a sign of the depletion of joy in our culture. Society is a bored, gluttonous king employing a court jester to divert it after an overindulgent meal. But that kind of joy never penetrates our lives, never changes our basic constitution. The effects are extremely temporary. A few minutes, a few hours, a few days at most, When we run out of money, the joy trickles away. We cannot make ourselves joyful. Joy cannot be commanded, purchased, or arranged. And the reason why is because it comes freely from God. Through Christ Jesus. That's how we can have joy. Joy is a product. It's it's a result of knowing God through Jesus Christ, and experiencing the abundance of life that we can only find in him. It's, It's overflowing. It's the overflowing of the life of Christ in our lives. That's what joy is. And the beauty of the gospel of Jesus Christ is joy is not a requirement for God's acceptance. All right? Joy, we don't have to be joyful people and put on, you know, bright, smiley faces in order for God to say, oh, you're smiling, I like you, and therefore I will make you my son. That's not how it works. We come, how? The Bible says, dead in sin and trespasses and transgressions. We come, how? Empty, devoid of life. How do we come? With our sin and our baggage and our past, our history, Things that we don't even confess, God sees, and he says, if you repent and trust in me, I'll give you Christ. I'll give you joy. So joy is not a requirement for God's acceptance. It's the consequence of God's acceptance. It's a consequence of our discipleship, right? It's a consequence of knowing who we are in Christ Jesus. And this psalmist knows who he is. He says, the Lord has done great things for us. We are glad. John Newton, I believe he experienced this in a powerful, powerful way. He was a former slave owner. He lived in the 18th and early 19th centuries. He was a slave trader. And God moved in his life and changed him in a radical way. And he wrote hymns, but Amazing Grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. There's some arguments as to whether or not he really meant wretch. Maybe he just meant wretch. (laughs) Not wretch, okay? You see what I'm saying? He was a wretch. He trafficked and he facilitated the trafficking of human beings, many of whom were killed and used and exploited. And he was an evil man. But God, but God. And listen to what he was able to say. 
says, I am not what I ought to be. I am not what I want to be. I am not what I hope to be in another world. But still, I am not what I once used to be. And by the grace of God, I am what I am. And because of that truth, because of that knowledge, he experienced joy, a joy that far surpasses any other joy known to humanity. So I said earlier that joy and gladness, so that it finds its roots in the past. It always has a past which forms and reforms the present joy. But in God's economy, the present joy can also bank on the future. And that's our last point. A joy-filled prayer or future, right? I had to, I had to make it match, okay? <laughs> Alliteration, because you guys know I'm a Baptist preacher, okay? I'm going to reread the last three verses because we haven't heard those or it was a while since our brother read. But <clears throat> the psalmist writes, Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like streams in the Negev. Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. He who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. Now, as I shared in verse 1, we're not sure if it was the Babylonian exile and the liberation from um, the the, the freedom that they experienced from that exile that, that he's referring to. In this case, we're not exactly sure if this... Uh, restoration of fortunes was um, what, what, what the psalmist was praying for was because there was a famine or a, you know, a crazy drought. Um, the Negev is this arid, dry, ultra-dry desert region. And so for him to cry out streams in the Negev is like saying, hey, you know, um, work a miracle, God. Work a miracle, Lord. This is what he's praying for. And yet, what did we just hear a moment before in verse 3? We heard that he was exclaiming the Lord doing great things for him and for his people. He was exclaiming that he was glad, that he was experiencing joy. And yet, what is he praying for? Again, we don't know exactly. Perhaps it was a a spiritual uh, time of of dryness. They were going through a desert period in their walk, in their journey. We don't know, but he's experiencing joy because he's experienced joy in the past that forms and reforms and gives him reason to rejoice in the present. And yet, what's he experiencing in the present? Hardship, trial perhaps. And therefore, he lifts up a prayer, a joy-filled prayer. He says, Lord, restore our fortunes. You know, I know some of us might be thinking, you know, I, I can't. I can't do this. You know, when, when, literally, right? When I'm crying, when I, my, my eyes are filled with tears, I can't even see, you know, directly in front. I can't see Vanessa. I can't see Minerva. I can't see them, right? And, and, and metaphorically, spiritually speaking, you, you might be thinking, I, I can't pray for these things. Is God there? Does he hear me? Yes, he does. And the word of God 
and the testimonies of many of you sitting here today will confirm that God hears and that God always answers according to his great wisdom, perfect wisdom, according to his time, right? One of my favorite songs. <laughs> in his time, in his time, he makes all things beautiful in his time. Lord, please show me every day as you're teaching me your way that you do just what you say in your time. We don't remember how great he is. We don't remember how faithful he's been. We don't remember that he makes all things beautiful in his time. That he does exactly what he'll say he'll do. Right? But God, even in his word, proves to us again and again. You know, if you ever read through the book of Isaiah, if you read through Isaiah 40 through 55, you know who, who Isaiah is, 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 is talking to, preaching to, prophesying to? He's prophesying to the exiles in Babylon. He's prophesying to the people who were experiencing, who had just experienced their fathers, perhaps, their aunts and uncles, maybe, you know, that raping and pillaging. And you know what God tells them? He comforts them as they are in Babylon. In Isaiah chapter 40, he, he begins with these just like soft and gentle words. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. And then later on, it gets stronger. In Isaiah 43, he says, Fear not. He who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. Through the rivers, they will not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. You are precious in my eyes. I love you. Fear not, for I am with you. And then in Isaiah 52, it says, How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, Your God reigns. And then, I don't even have to get to Isaiah 53, right? When it talks about the suffering servant. I know that some of us are in a place where we feel so low when we are in the here and now, not experiencing any of this joy-filled present that Juan is going off about. But you know what? What does the psalmist say? The psalmist doesn't say, suck it up. He doesn't say that. God doesn't say, suck it up. He says, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He says, come, bear your hearts. Share your struggles with me. Don't deny even the darkness of your struggles. Don't deny the struggles that you're having and the sins you're committing. Bring them to me. Bring me the, the depth and the, 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 the weight of your sin. 
says, bring it to me. We can be that bold. This is a safe place because God says, and the psalmists cry out. 150 psalms, you know what they're mostly comprised of? Lament. And many of those laments are just complaints. <laughs> People who are in the, in the most, in the lowest points of their lives, experiencing this despair. So we can be bold before our Abba Father again and again and again. We can lay down our fears and our sorrows and our joys, of course, at his feet. But what else must we do? Knowing how great he is. Knowing that he's so beyond us. We also, we can be bold, but we also have to be humble. Knowing that we're fallen. We're weak. We're finite. Knowing that our emotions sometimes often deceive us. Knowing that our emotions often get the best of us and, and lead us away from God and from God's people and from God's provision. So what do we have to do? We come boldly, God, I messed up. I have no idea what you're trying to do in my life. Please help. But then we have to be humble enough to say, Lord, do as you please with my emotions. Teach me. Break me. Form me. Use me. Do as you please in my life. He's the God who collects our tears. Remember Psalm 56? He puts our tears in a bottle. And so I came across this quote. Facebook can be a good thing at times. Pastor Rob posted this on his Twitter One of the true mysteries of the spirit-filled life is that sorrow and joy are not incompatible. Tears and thankfulness are not mutually exclusive. Anger and contentment are not irreconcilable by the grace of God. In God's economy, this is possible. This is true. And this is what we need to be reminded of this morning. And why? I've been saying this is true. You can bank on this. You can pray the psalm. You can look to the future and be filled with joy knowing that God loves you and that he cares for you. Why? How? I've said it already. And I'm not just closing the sermon with Jesus because I have to because it wouldn't be a gospel-centered or Christ-centered message if I didn't. But we can do this. We can know this. We can live this. We can sing this and pray this. Because who is Jesus? He was the man of sorrows. Right? Isaiah 53. He was the man of sorrows who was acquainted not only with the grief that we know, He was acquainted with the deepest kind of grief possible. He was acquainted with what? We, I just said a moment ago, we can run to God and God hears us and God answers us, correct? Any time of the day. It's, you know, we've got that direct line to God. There was a time in Jesus' life 
when he cried out to God in sorrow, tears, at the Garden of Gethsemane, what did God do? He said, I sent you, my son, to crush you so that I could save a people for myself. We can cry out to God and we can experience this joy and this gladness. And even through the suffering, we can know that he is God because of what Christ has done for us. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross and suffered its shame, is what the writer of Hebrews tells us. Our Jesus, our Savior, was not immune to tears. He was not immune to sorrow, but he was without sin. And the perfectly sinless man of God went to the cross to give us the opportunity to cry out to God with all that we are and say, Abba, Father. So if our Savior was a man of tears, a man of sorrow, how can we or how should we not expect to be those who sow in tears? Jesus Christ literally sowed the great Seed of salvation, if you want to call it that. If that's not how it should be (laughs) um, put, I apologize. He sowed with his life in tears and in sorrow. He saw Jerusalem. What did he do? He wept over Jerusalem. Shortest verse in the Bible is what? Jesus wept. Shall reap with shouts of joy. He who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. You know, I'm not going to get into it, but there are, how do we live this out practically in the here and now? I I talked about how we need to go back to our our salvation and and cry out to God. Psalm 51, restore unto me the joy of, of thy salvation. We need to be doing that again and again and again. We need to be experiencing the joy of spiritual victory, right? When you fight sin and you come out victorious, celebrate it. Share it with a brother. You know what? I was tempted last night, guys. I was at the hotel on a business trip, and it was just me and the TV. (laughs) And the remote, of course, right? And I was so close. But I went to God, and he delivered me. Share that. Share the victories that you have. Some of you are experiencing just a drought in your fellowship. Are you kidding? That CG, they never call me. They never reach out to me. I don't experience fellowship there. I experience more fellowship with my non-Christian friends. It's not Christ-centered, but... How do we experience it in all these areas of our, of our life? A new, a, a new work, for instance, a, a new a church plant, for instance, or, 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 or starting up a new ministry that's really hard, that takes a lot of sacrifice. What do we do? How do we experience joy as we do engage and live out life in these ways? We remember what Jesus said, that it is more blessed to give than it is to receive. Remember what it means to love as Christ loved with tears. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love is not self-seeking. Love assumes the best. Right? And we give of ourselves until it hurts. 
That's what sacrifice is. And who receives the glory? God. And who is it good for us? Not only the people that we give to, it's good for us. I'll close with this illustration because I've already gone too long. But almost every night now, what I do when I put Jordan to, to bed is uh, we go to his bedside, the, the mattress is on the ground, so it's perfect for his, 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 you know, his legs, which are about that long, right, from the knee down. And uh, we pray on the side of the bed. We pray. And then we get inside, uh, we lay down. He's our baby, so I know we're not supposed to be laying down with him when he's three and a half, but he's our baby. And so I lay down with him, and I bring my smartphone, and he always wants to sing Psalm 5510, and First uh, Timothy 4.12, uh, Seeds, Seeds Family Worship. You should check it out on YouTube. Seeds Family Worship. And then lately, he's been wanting to watch The Giving Tree every night. You guys know the story by Shel Silverstein, that scary, bald-looking dude, right? <laughs> it's a great story. <laughs> the Giving Tree. It's a story about this tree and this boy that start off this friendship when the boy's little. And he's making crowns with the leaves and, 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 and he's, you know, just frolicking, playing hide and seek with the tree. And he writes, you know, he carves into the tree, me and T, right? And he just absolutely falls in love with this tree and they have such a strong, powerful bond. They love each other. They're meant for each other. What happens? The boy grows up and life gets more complicated. So he leaves and he comes back and, you know, he... The tree's ecstatic to see the boy, and, and, and he, he, the tree wants to, to give the boy everything that she has, uh, but he says, you know what, I, I can't play with you anymore. I can't, I can't frolic with you or play hide and go seek. I'm, I'm, I'm too big anyway. I can't climb on your branches. He says, you know, I, I want some money. Can you give me some money? And what does the tree do? The tree gives and gives and gives all the apples, right? So he takes the apples, he goes, and he sells them, and he makes a fortune, and then he comes back after he's lost everything, and the tree is happy again. He says, I don't have any apples for you to eat. He's like, I don't want apples, but I have myself. And he's like, no, I don't. You know what I need? I need, I need, I need money, right? Well, actually, he, had, he needed money, so he got the apples. So he said, I need a house. I, I want a wife and a family, so can you provide me with a house? So what does he do? He, the tree gives him all the branches and, and, and the wood, and he says, take these things and, and, and go, boy, go, go, go build yourself a house. So he go builds himself a house and he comes back many years later. And the tree is so excited to see him. And um, the boy says, uh, you know, she, she says, hey, play with me. You can't climb on my branches because you took them. But, you know, um, just let's just spend some time together. And the boy says, no, I'm too, I'm too old and I'm too, um, I want to go away. So what does the tree say? He says, take my trunk and build yourself a boat and go away. And the boy leaves, and this time it says, and the tree was happy, but not really, right? But not really. That's what it means to experience both a joy and a sorrow as we give. And that's what we're going to experience as Christians. And that's okay. The boy comes back. And he's too old, and he's too sad to do anything. All he needs is a stump to sit on. So the tree straightens herself up as best as she can, and he sits down. The first time I shared that story with Jordan, he said, he almost cried. He said, Daddy, I don't like this story. I said, why not? He said, because it's too sad. But he wants to hear it every night. Every night. Let's pray.
Lord, we thank you for giving us this time to gather as your people and worship you. Father, we thank you that the gospel gives us every reason and the wherewithal, every provision that we need to rejoice and to be filled with gladness. For we know that this is a gladness that will last through all eternity. So, Father, while we may be experiencing circumstances and situations that may seem pretty bleak and dark, Lord, we know of your great love to us, the love that you displayed upon the cross when you sent your son Jesus who died for us, for our sins. Lord, we know that there's no other mediator between God and man. There's no other mediator. And so we cry out to you, Lord Jesus. We thank you and we praise you. And we trust that your word, when it says that if we believe on you and repent of sin, turn from our sin and trust in you for life eternal, life abundant, that you are faithful and true. And in your promises, you will provide us the greatest provision of salvation. So, Father, I pray that for anyone here who does not know you, Lord, who has heard the gospel, who has heard the message of grace, of your great love and mercy, I pray that they would respond by your Spirit's power and be saved. Thank you for, your time. Thank you for this time as we continue to worship you in all that we do. May you be glorified. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the sermon from Doctrines of Grace Church Planners. If you would like to learn more about Doctrines of Grace Church Planners or support our church planning efforts in the New York City area, please visit www.dg-cp.org.